Welcome, everyone, to Understanding the Human Condition. I'm your host, Dr. James Flowers. I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Robin French. Hi, Dr. Flowers. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> good. You I'm flew a little, in here on two wheels. I did. I'm a little, like, <laughs> all flustered from yesterday's, you know, know, little storm we had, a lack of a storm we had. So. <laughs> it was something. But I'm so excited that this morning we have a, a wonderful guest, uh, Dr. Mary Rose. Hello. Hi, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Really honored that you would take time to do this today. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Today we're discussing a topic that seems to affect everyone at some point in their life, lack of sleep and how to know if it's a sleep disorder or just poor sleep hygiene. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe I'm going to get help on today's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know I worked that in here because I know that you like you need eight hours. You said, right? Or well, otherwise, you, know what? you no, said you I just need... don't function. What What happens with me is if if I get five hours of sleep, I'm not good. Like at one o'clock in the afternoon the next day, my hands are shaking. I just, I, I cannot function. Maybe half a day. If yeah. I get six or more, I'm pretty darn good. But yeah. five, less than less than six to me is, is not great. But... Uh, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about your background, because I'm so interested in your practice, both for personal and then professional reasons for our patients. Yeah, so I'm, I am sleep specialist, and that has really been my uh, go-to. I've always gone back to sleep, even when I was doing general health psychology during internship and during um, you know my training, I always come back to sleep. So I started in college doing an uh, undergraduate thesis on dreams and that really moved and shifted. I went to Arizona when I went to the University of Arizona after I graduated. Um, I worked in the lab there and learned the technical aspects of sleep. And I thought it was fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I got to tell you, though, the thing I love about sleep the most is I think the people who do it are fascinating scientists and artists. And they are creative and interesting people. And they really think about the science of it and the, the life of the patients and what they need mm -hmm. eclectically. Right. They understand the whole person. And so um, so I stayed in that field and then I did a fellowship at the VA mm -hmm. in sleep, general sleep medicine. And um, I have continued doing behavioral sleep medicine um, for so I've been in this field for about 25 years. That's amazing. Oh, I love yeah. that. Did you do the VA in Phoenix or? No, here. Down oh, in, here. Right. Yes. Yeah, so after I did my internship, I came up to Houston and I did fellowship here. Yeah, that's fantastic. Good. Yeah. Now, what point do we know it's just not poor sleeping habits or hygiene and that it might we might actually have a disorder? So there's a lot of different types of sleep disorders. And when the, the one that is the most prevalent is insomnia. Mm -hmm. So when people complain of insomnia, a lot of the time they go to their primary care doctor. And as soon as they say, I can't sleep, unfortunately, it's assumed, oh, it's insomnia. And mm -hmm. they're often given medication. However, the standard of care for insomnia, if it is truly just insomnia or, or insomnia only, is cognitive behavioral therapy. So it's not even to just give medication because we know that that does not work for long-term use. Right. It becomes ineffective and the medications are never really trialed on the kinds of patients who end up getting them. Mm -hmm. We only try those medications on a very small select group of people who come into those trials. So, but then when it goes to market, everybody gets the drug. So right. that gets um, very confusing. But a lot of the time patients come in, people come in and they're complaining, I don't sleep. However, the reason why they don't sleep becomes essential for the diagnosis. 
are you snoring? Are you having a hard time breathing? Which could be sleep apnea and often is obstructive sleep apnea. And apnea literally means um, without breath. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's called apnea because you're literally choking during the night. You're, su you're suffocating. Mm -hmm. Gosh. So what we need to do is make sure that people don't have obstructive sleep apnea or central sleep apnea, which is another type of apnea that people can have where they just stop breathing. Their brain just tells them to stop breathing mm. for different myriad of reasons. Um, insomnia, circadian rhythm disorder. A lot of shift workers have circadian rhythm mm -hmm. disorder where they work at hours that don't really jive with their, their um, how they feel or how they perform. Um, night workers often have problems even if they're dedicated night workers. So again, we don't want to just treat it as though it's insomnia only. We want to look at their shift. People can kick in their sleep, which can cause like periodic limb movements, can cause a lot of arousal mm -hmm. as well. So we need to get a comprehensive evaluation of patients when they come in with their first thought is, first statement is, I don't sleep. It should not stop there. Right. We need to find out the myriad of reasons why they don't sleep. Is it falling, falling asleep, waking up at night, waking up too early? How much total sleep time are they getting? All of those things. Sure. Is it true, you know, uh, over you and I and Robin, we've all probably heard this from uh, a lot of successful executives, men and women both, during an interview will say, oh, I just need two hours a day of sleep. I just sleep three hours a day. Is that even possible, really? <laughs> no, it's really not. Yeah. It's not. So you were mentioning you need six hours, and that makes sense to me because we know that if anyone sleeps less than six hours habitually, they're considered a short sleeper. Mm -hmm. Very, very small percent of the population is a short sleeper. Right. Um, we really need seven to eight hours, and there is zero correlation between um, achievement level or IQ and how much sleep people get. We can know. You, yeah. Can you repeat that? What did you just? Is zero correlation between IQ and achievement level and how much sleep they need. Yeah, that, exactly. totally, that is so important because you know that Mary Carstaden who's a very, very well-known uh, researcher of adolescent sleep in Rhode Island, mm -hmm. actually got a lot of the laws changed there to change the, the hours that kids were going to school. And they at one point had a billboard that came up at one of the, in front of one of the schools mm -hmm. that said, if you were sleeping more hours than your GPA, you're sleeping too much. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I think she had that taken down. Yeah. I think, yeah. Um, yeah, because that's 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 outrageous. We know that kids who do poorly in school are sleep deprived. Right. Absolutely. You know that. And we know that sleep deprivation is responsible for many of the industrial accidents, transportation accidents, medical accidents that we've had from physicians. Mm -hmm. It's it's a, a huge factor. And unfortunately, in many Western cultures, it is just not prioritized. Sure. Um, and it and it fits with our fast-paced lifestyles, but it it absolutely depletes everything about our health and our performance. Yeah, many of the patients that we see at J Flowers, as you know, are performers or musicians or entertainers yeah. that have come from Los Angeles or Nashville or New York or wherever, and they tend to go to sleep or they'll come in and say, well, I don't go to sleep until three or four in the morning and I sleep till one in the afternoon. That can probably can be compared to a shift worker, right? And, the, and, the, and then that upsets the circadian rhythm. It does. So uh, we're, a lot of people who do, um, a lot of different industries are going to be not kind of nocturnal people to some mm -hmm. degree. 
what you have to remember though is for millions of years as a species Mm -hmm. Our our species has been diurnal, right? We've been mm -hmm. day creatures. Mm -hmm. So we're really not intended. Nothing about our physiology has set us up as our species, mm -hmm. <laughs> let alone individual differences, to be awake at night. And it's for the very good reason that evolutionarily, we don't see well in the dark. And so our, our brains and bodies have developed so that we get most bang for our buck in the daytime, where mm -hmm. we can see, where we can, you know, have good physical activity and brain activity yeah. at nighttime it's dangerous right right, right. Mm -hmm. so if you're out of the cave so to speak then you're going to get eaten by something right so we also know that's verified in many ways because when we look at what happens to our physiology at night we know that like the hours of 2 to 3 a.m are called a witching hour for a good reason it's because it is a bad time for us to be awake it's mm -hmm. a bad time for our brains and our bodies our bodies, they're not in sync with our brains. We are volatile. We don't think well. And in fact, there's an extraordinarily abnormal high rate of, of suicides mm -hmm. and suicide attempts between the hours of 2 and 3 a.m. But if you think about how many people are awake during that time, that is astronomical. Sure. Mm -hmm. Right? So, and when those people, when you talk to them about it more, and those of us in the field of sleep really mm -hmm. do love to ask right. people about those things, right. they say, well, in the morning, I just didn't want to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Or they yeah. start to recognize, yeah, yeah I yeah. guess I am volatile. I guess yeah. I'm impulsive at those hours. Yeah, I remember. So it's not ideal for anybody. Yeah, I remember probably like you, I'm not sure how you did your dissertation or when you did your dissertation, but when I was working on my dissertation, I would go to sleep at a normal time, but I love to wake up at like 5 a.m. and start writing. That's when I did my best writing mm -hmm. uh, on my dissertation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, when my brain was just fresh and rested. And you and you were probably more of a a uh, what's called like a lark, like someone who wakes early. And that there's a lot of advantages to that. Mm -hmm. Some people are a little bit, you know, more of an owl, so mm -hmm. to speak. And that just means that they go to sleep a little bit later. Teenagers, for sure, start to phase shift, right? And that's mm -hmm. totally natural. And they go to bed later, and they want to wake up later. And that's a natural developmental change. Um, I actually did my dissertation on uh, on internal medicine residents and sleep deprivation and its effect on mood. So wow, that's that's the data I was looking at when yeah. I was doing mine. Yeah. Yeah. Just briefly, what did you find? Well, that that after three days, because you generally they would have fall like every third day, mm -hmm. and after three days they had still not recovered. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. that deprivation that that you have, you don't recover the next day. Yeah. Sleep debt is is very significant, and we don't you can't just undo it yeah. by sleeping a long time the next day. It's still sitting with you, and it still has an impact on your sure. mind and body. Yeah. Is poor sleep hygiene something that we've grown into starting as back? <laughs> as far back as childhood is that something that it can you know? be it does go in families right because it sometimes you find families where it's like everybody's wandering around the house finding different places to sleep mm -hmm. and then you'll say well sometimes i'm in my daughter's room and sometimes my husband is with my son and sometimes we're together and so people are kind of wandering around the house trying to find a place that is going to let them sleep as though it's as though there's something in the air right mm -hmm. that's, right. that's going in different rooms Mm -hmm. And um, so we can teach kids that, which is not a, a great thing. And we can learn bad habits. So hygiene is just habits, right? It's the basics. It's just kind of not, you know, making sure that you have general routine, that you're not drinking caffeinated beverages before bed, that you have wind down, those kinds of things. 
Um, and it's the basics. And in fact, what we found is that people who have chronic insomnia actually don't have bad, bad sleep hygiene huh. because yeah. they've read all about it. Mm -hmm. You know, they know the habits that they should have. Yeah. It's more deeper things, deeper things, it's untreated sleep disorders. It's not really recognizing what are the things that, um, what I call like the wolves, because I like that evolutionary concept. What are the wolves at your door? What are the things that are keeping you awake at night that are really scaring you? Because if you don't deal with them in the daytime, they're going to follow you yeah. into bed. And that brings me to asking you about mood disorder and sleep. Mm -hmm. Does one go with the other and how do you treat that? It, it really does, but they're also separate. So we have found that um, it's critical to treat uh, anxiety and depression, and it's critical to, to treat separately their accompanying sleep disorder. So we had done, we had research that was done at Menninger uh, with uh, Michelle Patrick Plan, which showed that really what they needed to do was treat both of those things. If we don't, and people are admitted inpatient, then what happens is that they relapse with the mood disorder later. Sure. So what we try to do, like when we're working with the, the patients with Jay Flowers or anywhere is, in private practice, is to make sure that we treat both of those disorders. So generally we'll have you know, one person treats who specializes in sleep would treat the sleep disorder and make sure that we're managing the insomnia symptoms or the circadian rhythm disorder. And then someone who treats them more as an individual therapy, more longer term, mm -hmm. potentially would treat cognitive with cognitive behavioral therapy or another type of therapy, the mood disorder. Okay. But we've got to treat both. If we don't treat both, then neither really fully recovers. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you treat yeah. people of all ages? Yes, so I do. I treat um, pretty much six and up because there's different types of sleep disorders that affect different people. So um, at children, it's more uh, insomnia of childhood is when kids will start to, to um, behavioral things like behavioral um, insomnia of childhood is they're not going to bed on time, they're resisting bed, those kinds of things. And they have nightmares. Sometimes they don't even really mm -hmm. talk much about their nightmares, but that's what's waking them up. So there's a different set of problems. And then when people become adolescents, adolescents have phase delay. And then parents often think they're just lazy, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're like, ah, oh, get up, get up. But the fact is that they just had a very hard time going to bed earlier. We know that they produce melatonin, which is the, the drug that tells us that it's dark, you know, to be it's darkness and helps us sleep. They produce that later than adults do. And so their system is set up like two hours ahead of us. I mean, they're mm -hmm. they're just, um, or two hours behind us, I'm sorry. That they're just in a different phase than we are as adults. And then as people get older, they encounter a lot of other problems with their sleep. Sleep is more fragmented, it's not as deep. Um, they have a difficulty, they go to sleep early and then they wake up early. So. Yeah, it's all different problems that happen to us developmentally at different stages. Yeah. I remember, um, gosh, 20 years ago at this point, probably, my mother was diagnosed with dementia and she came to live with me. And yeah. when she moved in with me, my sleep started getting mm. somewhat oh, uh, yeah. restless because I was worried about her and I'd get up in the middle of the night or I couldn't go to sleep. I wanted to make sure she was okay or wasn't leaving the house. Mm -hmm. We didn't have in-house help at that point. And I know you kind of share a little bit of the same situation with you, with your mom. You're open about talking about your mom yeah. with Alzheimer's. How did that affect you? Well, I'm going to go back the very similar way. And I will say that one thing I'm, I'm guessing, Dr. Flowers, is that when your mother 
came to live with you too, that there were a lot of things that you were changing yes, for her, right? Absolutely. There could have been medical things that you were like, ah, oh, no, this is, we're going to change, you know, we're going right. to modify this. And then there's this transition of how do I get help? Yeah. Right. And so at first, like you, the first three months that, that mom was living with me, I had no night help. Right. And, yeah. you know, she had all the things that are very common um, that uh, particularly elderly women have, which like UTIs, things mm -hmm. like that, that yep. is very common. People, you know, are not caring for themselves as well. And so they're up all night and then you're up all night. Right. Right. Because yep. you can hear them and you think because of the way that you and I were raised and the way mm -hmm. we think about our careers, like we can do it. We can yeah, do it. You know? Exactly. And you keep and then, no, you can't. I yeah. mean, we're still human beings and mm -hmm. we need sleep and we need yeah. rest. Yeah. So um, for for me, it was a lot of transition and trying to figure out how do we make this work for her mm -hmm. and the overall goals for her. So identifying that and her overall goals are not to be successful in a new career or any of that. Her career, her goals are, I want to be happy. I don't want to be in pain. Right. I want to feel safe. Right. Yeah. Those are those are the main things. Yeah. And basic, you know, good medical care. But, you know, when someone is getting older, they're really thinking, I want to be out of pain. That's right. More than anything else, right. So, um, and sleep is a big factor in people with dementia, right? Because they, and I'm sure your mother went through this too. So it goes up and down and then it starts getting worse and worse. Right. And right. so for us, what we needed to do is we got full-time care. So we're very fortunate that we can do that. A lot of people cannot, yeah. but we have full-time care. And then um, we have to have someone there at night mm -hmm. who helps her when she gets up. Um, and then she will have sundown in, and I don't know if a lot, some of your audience may not be uh, familiar with that. I know sure. that you are, mm -hmm. um, but it's when the moment that sun sets almost just almost a moment. It, it was on time every time. Yeah. 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 It's you start the the person with the sundowning, um, starts to get disoriented. They start to get a little paranoid. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they get more angry, they get confused. And so we really have to make sure that we have medications on board that help that. But what's really important is that the care provider be in good shape. Yep. And we know that one of the best predictors for progression with, with dementia is the mental health of the care providers. That's right. Yeah. You know, it really is. And so, and neurologists will tell you, we can give Aricep and, you know, all these, Mamantine and all these medications, but what really comes down to is the care provider and 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 how yeah. they're doing that's right because that yeah that patient our mothers needed to feel safe they needed mm -hmm. to feel happy they needed to feel like you know there was security there mm -hmm. um but as they progress with that they start of course sleep gets much more mm -hmm. um fragmented right. and we we use melatonin um but you know so a lot of neurologists will recommend that and physicians will recommend melatonin sometimes at night particularly people start having movement stuff did mm -hmm. your mom have movement oh yeah absolutely yeah. yeah so and that actually falls in a category what's called rem behavior disorder mm -hmm. so you don't turn off the motor activity at night That's that right. happens in parkinson's as well mm -hmm. so we have to treat that um or else you get injured right, right? Mm -hmm. they're slamming things and hitting absolutely. things and screaming and yeah yep. yeah so it was an interesting interesting difficult time in my life but oh, more importantly yeah. in her life as well yeah yeah did you how did you what was there anything different that you did or you know no i did the same i was in therapy taking care of my own mental health because i knew i yeah. needed to be healthy with my mom and for my mom and yeah. uh we brought in night help as well and then full-time help and then eventually uh she transitioned from our home 
over to Seven Acres Jewish Community Home, which was just yeah. an amazing place for my mom. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it was a difficult, I really bet. difficult, and sleep was a big part of that throughout our stay with mm -hmm. me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you? Had and I think a, I think a lot of family do struggle with that transition too, yeah. but it becomes very difficult and much safer for yeah. often for people to go into yeah. someplace like that. And knowing that, recognizing that, yeah. that, that your 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 mom, your dad, they're okay. This is a good place for them. And mm -hmm. they would want they want they need you to get sleep. They need you to have yeah. your life as well. Yeah, you know, that was probably the most difficult decision of my life, mm -hmm. moving her yeah. from right. my home into yeah. seven acres and and they helped me feel this amazing sense of comfort. And, yeah. and I just can't tell the audience enough that mm -hmm. that when it's the right time for you and you're looking at Seven Acres Jewish Community Home is an absolutely amazing resource. And they take That's amazing care of their folks. Yeah, yeah. Very good to know. You know, I was reading your notes about just because it's over-the-counter doesn't mean it's safe. Mm -hmm. yeah. And can you educate the audience on this, that some over-the-counter meds they can cause really great harm. And you also mentioned that melatonin isn't found to be any better for you. Can you talk a little bit about all that? Yeah, so um, I, I, th I always tell people they should, they need to review anything they're taking, whether it's over the counter or from another doctor with their primary care doctor, the person who's kind of managing everything. And it's absolutely essential. Medications, um, you can, the, the FDA doesn't, um, rate medications based on safety, really. They base it on addiction potential. So you could certainly overdose on many over-the-counter medications, and people have to be careful with that. Uh, and there are medications that, like if you have seizure disorder, is not a good idea to take. Uh, some of the ones like diphenhydramine, et cetera, neurologists mm -hmm. will tell you, I'd rather you not do that. So you have to be very careful with it. And melatonin, you can get um, like 10 milligram melatonin capsules but we know that very large doses of melatonin over a long period of time can turn off those receptors potentially. Mm. So mm -hmm. that's not good either. And you don't get the bang for your buck with more than one or one to three milligrams of melatonin. The other thing is it's not always well, uh, it's not always very pure or very well uh, monitored when it's over the counter. So if the FDA is not monitoring it, you never know how much of the thing that's supposed to be in it is in the thing that it's supposed to be. Yeah. So, to so that's a risk too. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. How about some sleep tips to fall asleep quickly for the yeah. audience? So the basics are um, to make sure that not necessarily have the same time to go to bed every night, but that you have, that you wait until you're feeling that sleep drive, not fatigued, but sleepy. Like eyes are heavy, I'm falling asleep. Not I'm bored or I'm, I just, my legs mm -hmm. hurt, but I'm sleepy. But getting up at the same time helps create that really regular schedule for you. Trying not to nap if you can avoid it. Uh, trying obviously not to use a lot of caffeinated products, et cetera, is really important. Um, but having a day well spent, mm -hmm. so to speak, so mm -hmm. that you feel like this is a good day. You know, I, I feel like I achieved a lot. You're not going to be carrying a lot with you into the bedroom when it's dark and quiet and there's no distractions because mm -hmm. that's when those things are really going to creep up and get you for those of us that mm -hmm. do have drink coffee in the morning and sometimes at lunch do you typically recommend a cutoff time or is it different for everyone i think it's kind of different for everyone a lot of the time we will tell people after like don't drink any caffeine after noon mm -hmm. but that's difficult for some people everybody's metabolism with that is a little bit different mm -hmm. people do need to be careful with caffeine because caffeine is a, it's a um car, quote cardiotoxic to some mm -hmm. degree 
Yep. If you take it again in large doses, that puts a lot of strain on your heart. Sure. And so it's important not to do that, and it can cause other medical issues. So, and of course, it you know vasodilates, and yep. it can cause a lot of problems. So it makes your blood flow more, and if you're bruising or something like that, it's not so great. Yep. Um, or for inflammation. So what you want to do is you want to just try and reduce caffeine. Take a reasonable amount, try to do it, you know, finish your caffeine dose, whatever you're going to use, as soon as you can mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. bed. You know, unfortunately, we see so many people in our practice that come to us on a fairly large dose or sometimes even a small dose of a benzodiazepam. And yeah. people say, well, I need it to sleep, right? Yeah. And, well, it went from I needed 0.5 milligrams at bedtime to one right. milligram. And then I needed to take it twice a day and then three times a day. Someone that's detoxing off of a benzo, right, is going to yeah. have sleep difficulties. What's your thought process and how do you work with patients uh, when they're fresh off of a benzo or even for the last 10 years they've used a benzo to sleep? Yeah. I usually recommend that we try and do kind of a slow downward titration mm-hmm. um, for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And the physicians will say for medical reasons, there's reasons for that, but also because when you know you're not taking something, you're taking a lower dose, you expect yeah. a certain effect. You expect you won't sleep. And so what can happen is that people go down and then they, they don't sleep well. And then the next night they take the medication and then they do sleep well and they think, oh, see, it proves they yeah. need the medication. Instead of, well, but you didn't sleep the night before, so mm-hmm. your sleep drive was building. Um, and to recognize expectation is yeah. a huge factor. So we can, and really realize that we can give people a huge amount of sedatives and they will stay wide awake. And we have people who have a lot going on in their life and they will sleep just fine. Mm-hmm. Really does suggest that our minds, we don't give it enough credit. Our, right. our minds are very powerful. Don't give the medication all of the credit and why this or that happens with how you feel or how you sleep or anything else. Couldn't agree um, more. It's, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. it's it's part of it, but um, and, but going down slowly on those is so helpful so that people can kind of see that yeah. transition mm-hmm. yeah. and also have time to be you know have other medications that that I know your team puts on board to try mm-hmm. and help with the mood disorder, et cetera, start to take effect. Absolutely. Are there certain foods that can help you sleep? Um, I, I don't, you know, my daughter, my seven-year-old tells me warm milk. <laughs> and I think, uh, you know, I think that things that have tryptophan, you know, and yeah. like turkey, right? Those can really help for sure. And certainly sugar, we know, is fast energy. And so if you ramp up on a lot of sugar, then yeah. you're going to be in trouble trying to get to sleep. If you have mm-hmm. reflux disorder... And you're eating a bunch of spaghetti or something right before bed. That's not going to sit well. <laughs> right. And then, yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. So my girlfriends are suffering with some sleep issues in mm. menopause. Do you have any advice for those who are watching to help them out with that? Yeah. So I will say that the worst sleepers in the world are women who are postmenopausal and perimenopausal. Sleep is fragmented. You can be a fabulous sleeper and then you start going through those hormonal changes. So trying to, making sure that you're seeing, you know, your your provider to make sure that everything is is working proper, as properly as it can is critical. Mm-hmm. Women are more likely to certainly have developed thyroid disease and things like that as they get older and making sure that's not at play because many, many times people will be hyperthyroid and that's going to keep them really awake. Um, particularly women, more vulnerable to that. Mm-hmm. And then um, making sure that you stay cool 
because temperature in a room is very important for anyone for sleep. We really want to be cool, very cool at night. Um, and a lot of us will keep our house warmer because like, oh, save energy, but we actually oh, need to be cooler. Right. Um, yeah, like and women have hot flashes. <laughs> Huh? I keep mine like a meat locker. It's 67. Yeah, no, it really, honestly, the, the, like, uh, there, yeah, there's, I think it was Candace Alfano um, at University of Houston found that you need to be closer to like uh, 63 to 64 degrees. Oh, perfect. I saw that in one of her talks. Yeah. And and so, of course, I keep mine now at 64, right. 64 degrees. Yeah. yeah. And it does help. It's really helpful. It does. But it, particularly if you're menopausal, you're going to be a perimenopausal, you're going to be sweating and then it's up, down, up, down. And mm -hmm. our bodies regulate temperature. It goes all over the place at night. Mm -hmm. Like when we're in REM sleep, we don't regulate very well. And so you'll get cold and you get hot. And yeah, so mm -hmm. keeping cool in the daytime, keeping cool, just keeping cool when with menopause symptoms and treating those symptoms is important. But taking the pressure off overall is essential. So a lot of the time we wake up in the middle of the night and we're like, oh no, I can't believe it now. I won't be able to do this tomorrow and that. I can't go to work, I don't have to cancel my... And we really beat ourselves up as though it was a competitive sport that we failed at. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we really need to reduce that pressure. Yeah. Um, and reducing that pressure in itself helps a lot to get to sleep mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. our anxiety goes down and it's just a lot easier if we can do that. That's right. Mm -hmm. I have to ask a, a final question about all for all of the partners out there who have a loved one that snores. Um, yeah. <laughs> we hear that all the time, right? Yeah. yeah. What What is your recommendation when you have a couple or a partner that uh, is having difficulty sleeping because their spouse or partner is yeah. snoring all night long? Well, it's a it's very important that they get that evaluated, of course. And yeah. what I normally tell people is that if they're going to go into the doctor's office and get that evaluated that um, they, the spouse better go with them because when the doctor says, do you snore? They're going to say no. Uh -huh. So uh, yeah, so the spouse has to go with them. And then, um, and, and they need to understand too, that it's snoring is your airway is resisting air. And often that is apnea that's gets to a point where it just, your body gives up and mm -hmm. it just kind of stops breathing. And those are those pauses when actually is what usually wakes up the spouse because mm -hmm. the pauses in the breathing because there's a, there's a part of our brain that says, wake up, there's something bad happening. Mm -hmm. So we are more likely to wake up if our partner stops breathing than if they're snoring. Yeah. Because the snoring yeah. is more, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So generally um, what I say is go with them so that you can report things. Mm -hmm. um, recognize that you can be a very, very resilient person and do a lot. It doesn't mean that you're breathing well at night and you are, you are, you are suffocating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it is critical to get your airway open. There are a lot of different treatments and don't be scared of whatever you think you're gonna get for a treatment like positive airway pressure, understand it so you mm -hmm. can feel informed. But people feel better when they get it treated. They are lower risk for stroke, heart attack, diabetes, um, immune problems, so mm -hmm. many things sure. that impact you when you don't breathe well, dietary issues, GI upset, you know, everything, mm -hmm. yeah. I don't. I don't know if this can be uh, compared as a as a similar analogy or not. But you know how when someone lives near a railroad track and they hear a train whistle going or a train going by, they adjust and they sleep through it. Or they live mm -hmm. near a freeway and they hear the noise and it becomes yeah. an ocean sound and they sleep. I wonder why we don't wake up when we are loud snorers and it doesn't <laughs> wake ourselves up. No. It does. Some people. Some people it does, ah. but 
The other problem is that if you're a very loud snorer, think about it. Those people are super sleep deprived. Uh -huh. So people will often say mm -hmm. to me, oh, I, you know, I have insomnia, but I want to sleep like my spouse because my spouse falls asleep in 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, that's not normal. Right. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's, yeah. you know, and they just falling asleep at the drop of a hat is not normal. So yeah. it's critical uh, for people to understand that we should, it takes a while, you know, it's mm -hmm. natural, it's normal. It takes us a few minutes to, to yeah. fall into sleep. And we should not be struggling with our airway at night. Yeah. That's yeah. definitely something that's a red flag. It might be snoring, mm -hmm. which we know, even if it's just snoring, is resistance and not great for you. But if it's actually apnea, it's suffocation. So right. yeah. how to treat it. Yeah. yeah. What a fascinating topic today. I, know. I, I could keep okay. going for hours on this. I know, I have a ton because, more questions. Because there's so many, uh, you know, in our practice, we're just full of this. And mm -hmm. we hear it. And I think everybody listening hears it as well. Mm -hmm. If someone wants to reach you as a sleep expert, what's the best way to reach you? Yeah, they can, they can contact me at uh, rosefamilyhealth.com. Mm -hmm. uh, they can contact me through you, through mm -hmm. Jay Flowers, certainly. Okay. Yep. Um, and uh, that's, but the best way to contact me is probably through going through uh, my website. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that, in fact, I have to never remember my own contact information. I know, I don't either. But, yeah, it's not funny. <laughs> it I is, barely yeah. remember my phone number. Yeah, rosehealthpsychology.com. Right. And okay. it's rosefamilyhealth at gmail.com. Excellent. Aww. Yeah, so. Well, everyone, reach out to Dr. Mary Rose if you're experiencing some of these problems or reach out to J Flowers Health at jflowershealth.com. Perfect. And uh, I just can't, again, what a fascinating, <laughs> Thank you. you know, I work, Thank in, you so much. I work in chronic pain, obviously, and with yeah. a lot of chronic pain patients. And you work, your expertise is sleep, and I just think it's so fascinating it what is. you do. So yeah, thank, thank you. you for well, your time. Well, I do too. I love it. Yeah. I love this field. And uh, I love our field of psychology. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. And, yeah. and sleep well, everybody. And thank you so much for having me on, this, uh, on this podcast. Thank I you. That. I want to remind everyone watching or listening that there are numerous platforms to find our podcast. YouTube, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Please share this episode on social media or with someone that you think it would help. Yeah, and we will share this with you shortly. Yeah. We will. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, Thanks, yeah, Dr. Thank you. Rose. We want to remind thank you that you. the clear diagnosis is the key to the most effective treatment possible. Yeah. Thanks, See you everybody. Next week. Thank you. Bye, Dr. Rose. Bye. Please join us every week for a new episode of Understanding the Human Condition with Dr. James Flowers. Dr. Flowers and his most admired mentors, respected colleagues, and VIP guests will share valuable insight into underlying health causes, conditions, and issues. These in-depth yet approachable episodes are a great resource for both private individuals and industry professionals. Our esteemed host, Dr. James Flowers, is one of the most recognized and respected names in the field of chronic pain, mental health, and substance use disorders, both nationally and internationally. Dr. Flowers is the founder of J. Flowers Health Institute, located in Houston, Texas. For more information about J. Flowers Health Institute and its concierge services, go to jflowershealth.com or dial 713-783-6655. And be sure to mention this podcast.